This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. In this episode we hear stories and sounds, written and recorded by Fionn Davenport, Victoria Kenefick, Neil Hegarty, Radhika Iyer, Kate Packwood, Barbara Flood and Judy Meg Nikonade. This week's keyword, common ground. From the air we breathe, the streets we share to the laws we make, to the way we treat others. From holiday apartment rentals, to couch surfing, to ride shares, it seems impossible to return to the old ways of sharing anytime soon, and those ways weren't even that old. For those of us lucky enough, we can retreat to the safe haven of our homes, where some scrabble for strategies to feel productive, and others just wait it out. Now, for many, their most intimate experiences are in the virtual world. And when we do go out, you can see that people aren't fully relaxed. Writer and broadcaster Fionn Davenport grapples with the best way to share public paths on his daily exercise. I'll come around this way, yeah? Oh, it's okay. Oh, hiya. come here. Go and get that thing. All right. <laughs> See you, no problem. Ever since the crisis began, I've taken up cycling. And I'm pretty lucky because at the end of my road is the Fallowfield Loop, which is a disused railway line that's been converted into an off-road cycle path and it's a resource for everybody for everybody who lives in South Manchester runners and pedestrians and even horses morning sorry excuse me thank you thanks so I'm on the path now and it's about 10 feet across so Ideally, when you meet oncoming traffic, I move to the left and they move to the other side and that maintains a safe distance between us. For the most part, everybody has been doing their level best to maintain a distance from each other. It's morning now, but as the day wears on, it gets busier and busier. So you might meet Lots more cyclists, runners, and particularly walkers, people out for their daily exercise. Like there's a couple, uh, here they come, and they've just moved over to one side for me. Morning, thank you. It's a strange thing that we have this shared space, and yet we can't actually share the space as we'd like. So even just a couple walking two abreast becomes an issue because it means that anyone going faster than them can't overtake and so they should be in single file and it creates anxiety and stress and I mean I've noticed over the last couple of weeks that people can get very kind of irritable at the lack of distance and that's and it seems to me that the only way I know how to mitigate the stress that comes from not being able to do what is inherently natural to us all which is 
you know, talk to people, stand next to people, engage with others in any kind of in a normal way is to make sure you say hello and, and thank you. Morning. And that way, and perhaps it sounds a bit lofty, but in that way we kind of acknowledge each other's humanity. It's common ground in most uncommon times. And now I'll go back indoors and wait to do it all again tomorrow. Morning. A simple hello really can go a long way when it comes to making our shared spaces feel better. But a pandemic doesn't magically mean there's total harmony. Some people don't seem bothered to say hello or budge from the path. We've all met them. In a way, you have to admire those begrudges. You know they're not going to be the ones making false promises to themselves to change when all this is over. No way. In her poem, Hedgehog, Victoria Kenefick explores so much of what makes us different, but also, more crucially, what can bring us together to find a common path where compromise can be reached. I tried to jump the stream in leg warmers that caught the attention of every bramble on the climb up that hill. Tangled too slow, I tripped over slender water you had cleared in one magnificent deer leap to fall flat at your feet. I shut my eyes, as if you would not see my embarrassment of ripped leggings, exposed knicker elastic stripes of wet mascara down my face. My boots, so lately pristine, two drunks huddled to my chest in a nest of reeds and thorns, already dreaming of the night before. I curled, hunched my back into its natural roundness, then felt them emerge, shove through skin, paper thin. I couldn't help it. My spikes, my spikes popping the silence, now tearing fabric while you stood over me, mouthing like a fish. We were just going for a walk. Then pulling me to my feet, you guided me back, loose-legged the way we came. Once over the gate, finally safe on asphalt, my face hot and drizzly, you laughed and laughed when I confessed a deep, abiding love for paths. <laughs> a compromise not to stray from the path seems like a good strategy. As I've been walking around my area, people have taken time to pin up notices. Most are direct messages about COVID restrictions. This is two metres, or stay back. Another was a wanted poster for a vegetarian vampire. Not quite sure what that one's about. But I've also come across a number of painted stones. One tucked into a tree that says, stay strong. Another lying in the grass that says, every cloud has a silver lining. Tiny messages marking public spaces. I dig out a flat stone myself, about the size that would feel nice to rub in your pocket as you're out for a walk. I paint it buttercup yellow and write on it, imagination is our common ground. I leave it on the wall outside my house. The next day it's gone, so I paint another. The next day it's gone too, and another, and so on for a few days. 
I like to think that people are walking around with them in their pockets, these tiny pebbles of possibility. Neil Hegarty is a writer and a guerrilla gardener. One Sunday morning, before any restrictions were in place, Neil and his partner got up and crept out to the streets to plant seeds on the curbsides. The getting up, especially early on a Sunday, was of course deliberate, for we felt it necessary to go about our task if not quite surreptitiously, then at least not brazenly. We needed to bring with us some sturdy equipment, a garden tool or two, to break the ground, to do a little digging at the base of the magnificent plane trees, which line our section of the South Circular in Dublin. Nasturtium seeds and bee bombs, and we'd saved our poppy seeds from the year before, envelope after envelope filled with little black seeds. Some of this mass of seeds we'd given away to friends, but we still had a great deal to spare, and we quite fancied the idea of a corner of the city transformed into, well, why not, a field of poppies. Johnny Appleseed, how are you? Spade, compost, watering can, seeds, gloves, bone meal. The ground at the base of the plane trees was heavily compacted, littered with stones and aluminium cans and worse, seemingly bad ground. But poppies famously require only disturbed earth, and nasturtiums like poor stony ground, and wildflowers in general tend not to be picky. So we dug a little, and removed the worst of the stones, and broadcast our seeds, and watered them in. And we were home again, unchallenged, and the kettle on, by 9am. Gardening, whether gorilla or not, it hooks you, it draws you in. Although, like any form of gardening, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. On one occasion, I planted crocus corms in the local park, which shone sunburst orange the following spring. Just the one spring shining, though that summer the council came and applied herbicide in the park, and that was an end to the crocuses, as well as, I suppose, to a mass of other life. I read now that the council is banning the use of such potions and allowing the grass to grow in the verges. So, maybe the city is getting in on the gorilla scene too. These days, it feels more essential than ever to cultivate a dialogue between our human civilization and all that surrounds us. Essential to, as it were, improve the soil to create different growing conditions. It's a means of better understanding the world. And besides, we're doomed if we don't. And we can do all this for the joy of it too, for the sheer unbounded satisfaction. Again and again, I return to a great gardening poet who wrote in the first half of the 20th century. Ursula Bethel created a garden in the South Island of New Zealand in the years before the Second World War. And her poetry is full of beauty and insight and, lest all this become too heavy, too meaningful, a degree of levity too. As she points out in one poem, Catalogue, we can change the world, but we don't have to take ourselves too seriously. Come, 
Let me read this catalogue of shrubs and choose out some with lovely sounding names. Adenanda, Uniflora, Aloysia, Citiodora, Iochroma, Tubulosa, Podoliria, Grandiflora, Melaleuca, Santolina, Lasiandra, Cantua, Cassia, Felicia, Leculia, Daphne. <laughs> shrubs. I am planting shrubs. Before COVID, we all had very different things to focus on. Though summer is still very much here. Climate change hasn't gone away, you know. We all thought Iceland would win the Eurovision. We all thought the last couple of years would be remembered by Trump or Brexit. With Harvey Weinstein jailed, many hoped a new post-Me Too age was dawning. A time where a woman's body wasn't thought of as common ground for general use. Here's Kate Packwood. The landscape stretched before me as wide and flat as longing. While spring would bring gentleness to this patch of land, winter had stripped it back to a bleak and stark expanse, as though it were holding its breath, as if it were crouched and waiting for its moment to come out of hiding. The trees stretched their branches to the sky, naked and exposed, like washed children holding up their arms, waiting to be clothed. And sodden, trodden grass, crushed underfoot, regrew anew along the edge of the pathways, and the smell of mud and briquette smoke hung tentatively in the cold still air, like a suppressed gasp. And here, here I stood on common ground, not knowing what was to come after, or what would come before. Of course I knew what had come before, but that was of no relevance now. All that mattered was the retelling, and that was where I was lost, where I had lost my way, where I stepped out, bereft, as truth and invention parted company. He would tell it differently to me. I would tell it differently to him. He said, she said. He said, I said. I said, I said, I said, will I say? He will tell it differently to me. And they will ask me if I was drunk, because that will mean it's my fault. And they will ask if he was drunk, because that will mean it wasn't his fault. And where does truth reside? Where is the common ground between the tales, between the yes and the no? My no. No, I said, no. No. And where was once private and safe and mine, mine alone, is now common ground, and truth runs roughshod over it, as he did, and no, I said, no, 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 there is no common ground, no. Just before the lockdown, journalist Barbara Flood came back from Greece where she visited Moria Migrant Camp. She still gets messages from those stranded there. 
where refugees live crowded together, all united by a common goal to move to a safer, more stable country and home. The fire was not in the section, it was out of the section, it was in Moria camp. A boy was stabbed to death. And there was, you know, three days ago, one boy was killed and there was a protest for that. That's Bakir, one of the unaccompanied minors, of which there are hundreds. He sends me a picture he drew. A bird with its wings wrapped in wire and the caption, Every human being has the right to be free. There's a phrase in Arabic which translates as Health is a crown that the healthy wear on their heads, but only the sick can see it. It could apply to the many things we take for granted, especially now in this weird twilight space, worrying about our loved ones, uncertain about the future, everything on pause. Refugees can see many crowns clearly. When you live in Moria, uh, you can just uh, waste your time in the different lines, like for food lines, showering lines, toilet lines, and you can just waste your time. You can you can you can do not anything. You can just eat and sleep, and waiting for for a interview or for a decision that you don't know how long it will take. It's really difficult. Really, it's very difficult. There are people stuck in this camp for months upon months with no idea when their lives can start again. Six months for an interview. Yeah, and they have to wait uh, four months again. I'm very tired and it's bothering me a lot. Sometimes I'm just crying and I cannot do anything. I'm very tired about this situation. In such difficult circumstances, this pandemic isn't an equaliser and is far more risky and isolating for some than others. I flick through posts on social media. Some friends are coping, others not. A single parent I know was embarrassed out of a shop for bringing their children with them. Another is on their own, with no phone, no internet and no TV. Others in direct provision and nursing homes can't find the distance they need. And in spite of the shared phenomenon of the lockdown, many others are still struggling to belong. In Am I, Radhika Iyer's journal entry, she explores how she's been made to feel different. I joined the long snaking queue outside Tesco, just like everyone else. I am on common ground. I am on common ground. Everyone in the queue is either wearing a mask or gloves or both. I'm wearing neither. I see eyes glancing at my face and hands. As I inch the trolley forward a few inches every few minutes, I realize I'm different. I'm the only brown person in the queue. The brown one without a mask or gloves. I am not on common ground, not on common ground. Where are you from? People ask. I shrink from that question. It's an innocent question, and maybe you are really interested in knowing where I'm from. But that would make me different. That would mean I'm not on common ground. The answer to that question would wrench me more than 10,000 kilometers away from you. 
I am from here, from this earth. Yes, I am brown. Yes, I have dark hair. Yes, I have dark features. Yes, I have a different accent. Can't we find common ground? Can't we find common ground? Your English is so good, you say. Don't patronize me, I don't say. Thank you, I say. Am I on your ground? I dare not say your name, you say. Why not? Is it not a name that is common to you? I don't say. How many names do you know? I don't say. Am I on your ground? That's not how I thought you say your name, you say. Why? Because of the way it's spelled. Are all names said like they are spelled? Neve is not. is not. Owen is not. Owen is not. Anya is not. Shivon is not. So why do you want to say my name like it's spelled? I don't say. Am I on your ground? Am I on your ground? What do you teach? You ask. English, I say. Oh, you can do that? You ask. I don't know what to say. Yes, I say. I'm not on your ground. I'm not on your ground. Where are you from, miss? They ask. From Dundalk. No, where are you really from? They ask. When did you learn English? They ask. Do you think in English? They ask. Do you dream in English? They ask. Do you ask the other teachers these questions? I ask. No, of course not. They are Irish, they say. I dream, think, swear, sing in English. I don't say. Since I was a child, I don't say. As long as I can remember, I don't say. There is no common ground. There is no common ground. I want to belong. I've wanted to belong since I moved here a few years ago. I look different, speak different. I may eat different, but this lockdown has given me common ground. I'm staying within the confines of my home. I walk alone, bake, cook, laugh at videos on social media, binge watch Netflix, just like everyone else. I joined the long snaking queue outside Tesco, just like everyone else. I'm on common ground. I see eyes glancing at my face and hands as I inch the trolley forward a few inches every few minutes. I know I'm different. I'm the only brown person in the queue, the brown one with a mask and gloves. No one else is wearing masks or gloves. I'm not on common ground. 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 than asking where someone is from? I learned from my father recently that his uncle died in the flu pandemic of 1918. He was quarantined in a Cork hospital, and my grandfather, a young boy at the time, shinnied up a drainpipe to the first floor and crept into the room to see his brother before he died. Up until now, that pandemic that came on foot of World War I seemed so distant to me. Connecting to our own history often takes finding a way to share in it. Judy Mag Nikonade is a radio producer. Her great-grandfather fought in the First World War. 18th of February, 1917. Darling Lily, I'm sorry I couldn't get my letter posted yesterday as I missed the post-corporal. The course I've been on was simply a musketry course, the same as we had at Dollymount, 
all the men up in their turns, so you see, you had nothing to worry about. I think I told you I got your last parcel sent... My great-grandfather was not much older than my younger brother when he left his wife and three children to fight in the First World War. He was a lance corporal in the British Army, alongside 200,000 other Irish men. All that remains now is a couple of faded photographs and one letter. The letter, or rather the words, have been shared widely among his descendants. What would he have made of that, I wonder? I didn't know him, nor did anyone alive today. Kathleen is certainly a brick when she turns out with you these cold mornings. The frost and snow are clearing off here very nicely, and the weather this last couple of days is quite mild. How are your mother? Aggie, Teeny, Charlie, give them all my love. Three months after this letter was written, my great-grandfather died at Ypres in Belgium. The story of his attempt to rescue a fellow soldier and both being killed by a shell as he carried the injured man slung over his shoulder has been passed down the generations. A heroic tale that may have given a small amount of comfort to those he left behind. Like many other soldiers, he has no grave. He was 34 years old. A hundred years after his death, my younger brother returned to Ypres. I wanted to go because I kind of wanted to maybe understand a bit. A local historian had explained it to me very, very clearly where it was. And so what we were looking at was a brown field, which was in between two small little wooded areas back in the First World War those wouldn't have existed at all. They would have been destroyed by bombing, by shelling. But uh, it was a fairly nondescript little field. I don't really know what I was expecting, whether expecting something something grand or dramatic, but it was a small little brown field in between two little woods. I mean, it is it is pretty and picturesque in its own way down there, but definitely I can imagine it being a very, very bleak place to die. We're about to hop on our bikes and I just suddenly thought to myself, well, would it be nice to bring some earth back with me? It's sort of rocky enough soil around there. Um, I actually used a plastic water bottle that I had handy from my cycle and um, sort of scrambled the earth into that. I have since transferred into a nice little glass bottle. That little glass bottle is now in Ireland. A handful of dry earth that contains the bones of thousands of young men, among them our great-grandfather. It's a small thing, but maybe the right thing. To bring him back, in some way, to his family. Now, darling, do keep up heart. And don't worry, as I do hope to keep all right, and I'm looking forward to our reunion in the near future. Give my fondest love to all at home, and oceans of kisses to yourself and our little ones. I am glad you are sending me a watch, as I am absolutely lost for the time. I am, darling Lily, ever your own, Ted.
Keywords is a New Normal Culture production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, Sound and Vision Fund.